Hello listeners, welcome to the Media Law Newscast. I'm Tom Bennett, and uh, I'll hand over shortly to our usual uh, host of this show, Colette Allen. Um, But I wanted to say hello again in these strange times in which we find ourselves. Uh, We haven't had a podcast in a few weeks. We've been working hard uh, on the academic front, sorting out as best we can arrangements for our students. Um, But we're back uh, and we are going to be talking about some of the issues raised by the global coronavirus pandemic for the media and the law relating to the media uh, in a a series of podcasts in the coming weeks. So it's nice to be back. We hope that you are keeping well. uh, And uh, we're going to start by looking briefly in this newscast at a few of the issues that we think have arisen and need to be looked at in more detail. We'll try to come back to some of them uh, in longer podcasts in the coming weeks. But we're going to start um, by looking at the Act of Parliament that's been passed specifically to introduce new provisions to deal with uh, the pandemic and some of the impact that that is going to have on the interests of the media. Um, So that is the Coronavirus Act of 2020. And Colette, you've been looking at it. Yes. Um, So this was the act that received royal assent on the 25th of March. And it includes provisions to expand the availability of video and audio links in court proceedings so that the delivery of justice can continue during the emergency period. And I think it's important to give credit where credit's due here, as the UK is proving an exception in this regard. Many courts in Europe have simply closed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Nevertheless, there are a lot of unanswered questions raised by the Act, in part because it's been quite rushed through Parliament without proper time for consideration. Namely, what happens to the role of the public observer? How do you broadcast restricted information? How do you make the public and the media aware of remote hearings? What are the security risks? And I think it's important to be aware that um, we've been moving in the direction of remote courts for a while now. Professor Richard Sutskin, the IT advisor to the Lord Chief Justice, has made a career out of championing online courts. And a total of £1 billion has been spent to improve the efficiency of the courts of England and Wales through digitalisation over the past 10 years. And so this is a direction we were already moving in, which means the way that the remote hearings are conducted during this emergency trial period will be the default framework as we move forward in the non-corona tech judicial age. So it's important to be aware of the issues as this gives us the best shot at avoiding getting into bad habits. Hmm. So the public observer issue, um, what exactly are the potential problems that the, the move to digitalization throws up? So um, it's it comes down to issues of open justice. And so currently the legislators plan to protect open justice through the provisions set out in Schedule 25 of the Act, which gives the court discretion as to whether proceedings will be broadcast for the purpose of enabling members of the public to see and hear the proceedings. Now, the discretion element isn't necessarily a problem, as this is in line with the way open justice principles differ across different jurisdictions, and public live streaming may not always be appropriate. Family courts, for example, restrict the observation to accredited card-carrying journalists, 
um, and the information protected by reporting restrictions can be heard but won't be reported. But the mention of restricted material in court does not prevent the media and the public from attending. Indeed, Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service media guidance say that the media are entitled by law to hear and be present in all open court proceedings, including those with reporting restrictions in place. So the courtroom's acting as a kind of sanctuary and a place where sensitive cases can be discussed openly in the knowledge that certain facts won't leave the room. And it's difficult to see how this can be replicated online without losing this important aspect of open justice. So you'd be talking about restricting access entirely to proceedings because of some of the material that is going to be disclosed in them rather than permitting access but putting restrictions on the reporting that can come out of them? Well, I think that's that's the thing is there's no clear guidance on what approach will be taken. There's nothing to say whether cases will be live streamed, all cases will be live streamed, which would be the fairest thing for open justice, but isn't necessarily doable, given the current technology restrictions, you can't live stream everything. Um, and, And also, it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate if there are reporting restrictions in place, because that would undermine the the point of having a reporting restriction there in the first place that means that the wider public don't get access to certain names or details, etc. And so one one method that was suggested by the Lord Chief Justice was that you only let in a narrow set of accredited journalists on certain cases which are dealing with sensitive issues. But the problem with this is that the media aren't necessarily the only bodies who are representing the public interest. Often you have civil society organisations or legal professional bodies who may be just as valuable representatives of the public interest as the media. And so, yes, during an emergency period, letting smaller numbers to remote hearings seems better than doing nothing. But if remote hearings are here to stay, then this practice would undermine open justice by proving quite a significant limitation on access to the courts for the public. Yes, and I suppose the use of technology, just to look at it from a slightly different angle, poses a whole set of security questions itself, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's acknowledged in the Coronavirus Act itself. Section 53 recognises that off-the-shelf communications platforms are particularly vulnerable to misuse, um, as it provides temporary modica- modifications to the Courts Act 2003 and makes it an offence to record a broadcast from a court that has been directed for the purpose of enabling members of the public to see and hear proceedings and in any event to record or transmit material gained through participation of a live link. So, and it's something that's been acknowledged that there are real risks that pictures of judges, social workers, advocates might be taken from from those who have access to the online hearing and then posted on social media. But it's kind of a risk that everyone is saying is just going to have to be accepted for the time being. So there's a matter that has not been given prominent coverage in the media and it's worth just repeating that then. So there's a, a criminal offence of recording any live streamed court proceedings. Yes. And it may well be that listeners are not aware of this. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of people aren't aware of this. And so it's it's something that the courts will have to make very clear when they're beginning proceedings online so that anyone who is tuning in 
knows that they really can't be taking any pictures or um, recording it in any way because they, they do risk fines or even prison time. Okay. So what other issues arise out of the uh, Coronavirus Act? Um, I think there's there's a big issue with how journalists and the public will know about which hearings to access. Um, there's, I mean, in the best of times, court lists aren't the most detailed sources of information and journalists often rely on word of mouth tip-offs or wandering around the courts to kind of see what's of interest. Yes. And so it's been suggested by uh, Mr Justice McDonald's that information about online hearings and judgments that are handled down on email should be uh, provided via the press association. But again, this puts the media in the kind of privileged category and people who don't have access to the press association's um, news bulletins, like civil societies, charities, interested bodies, etc., won't know about which hearings to tune into. And so I think that's another big one that, that the, there's going to have to be a very um, clear system in the courts themselves to allow the public to call up and get information on hearings that they might be interested in. Yes. I wonder to what extent that that is a, a serious problem in that presumably the current system is deemed sufficiently compliant with the principles of open justice. And under the current system, as you say, it's it's already kind of opaque. If you go down to observe what's going on in court for the day, you often don't know what it is you're going to see. You turn up at court, and in my experience, you you, you say to the um, the clerks of the court, you know, I'm come to observe what's on, and they say, oh well, we've got a you know we've got a murder trial in court three, we've got a assault in court five, we've got some sentencing hearings in court six, and you just take your pick and go and see, but you don't know anything more than that. And the only people who really do know about particular cases that they're going to see are the journalists who've been told to cover them and, I suppose, people who know the parties involved in particular cases. So if you could replicate that degree of information online, maybe that would be sufficient. Yeah, and I think definitely more detailed court listings will be a, a, a significant way of helping people get access to the hearings that they're interested in but it's it's another layer of admin that needs to be factored in at this point and I think it, there's a risk that it it isn't being considered because people are focusing right now on making sure that the trial itself runs smoothly they're not necessarily making sure that detailed information is provided to those outside. Yes and it's not an, an issue that they're going to be able to deal with quickly because of the additional administrative burden, which obviously the courts are already under a very significant administrative burden, right. because you know, they've got fewer people on site, people are working from home more, and you know, the circumstances are less good. But as you say, it is the sort of issue that if we're not going to go back to a world where there is no live streaming of courts, and I think you know, I broadly agree with you that that, that time is is not going to return just because this particular pandemic comes to an end whenever it does. I think it's likely to be here to stay in some form or other. But these are matters that we're going to have to look at um, in the interests of open justice uh, when things do get 
I hesitate to say back to normal. When things change. Good stuff. Uh, what should we talk about next? Well, there's an interesting development coming out of Oxford University, which takes the form of an app that uses Bluetooth to create a digital map of where you've been and who you've been in contact with. And the idea is that it'll help end the lockdown period. Um, and you, if, if you test positive for COVID-19, you upload your new health status onto this app and it will automatically and anonymously inform everyone that you've been in contact with during the contagious period to go home and self-isolate because they've been in touch with someone who now has um, COVID-19. Crikey. So there are major privacy implications for this. Obviously, you're sharing both geographical information, location information, and health information. Um, And I think... It's something that um, people definitely in the European, like a lot of the European countries are trying to get their heads around and here we'll have to consider quite carefully if this is going to be a viable solution of ending the lockdown period because it's not clear, like as soon as you download the app, does that mean you've just waived all of your privacy or have you, do you still have some sort of privacy rights even though you've accepted the terms and conditions or is downloading the app consent enough that you are going to be sharing this information for the greater good of public health yes i mean there are so many issues when you talk about the the alignment of these three things location data um health data and i personal identifiers those three one thing one thing i should be clear on though sorry is that it would be anonymous so any message that was sent to someone saying that they've been in contact with someone who has now tested positive for COVID-19 wouldn't get the name of the person who has now been positive so it's not necessarily personally identifiable yes but at some level I mean I would need to know more about the technology but it's likely surely that at some level the the app is collecting personal identifying information and depositing it somewhere unless it is purely communicating from one to another via some sort of encrypted channel Mm. it's more likely that that data is being held somewhere centrally whether it's being held on on the the owner's iphone or whatever other brands of telephone are available um but on the uh, owner's phone owner's device or whether it's being uploaded to some central repository i don't know i've not I don't know enough about the tech, the proposed technology to know how it would work, but in either event, you've got the coalescence of those three forms of information. There's going to have to be questions asked about how secure that information is and how it's going to be used. Um, we need a GDPR specialist on really to talk about this. Um, I'll see if I can dr- we'll try find drag one up, drag one up in the next few weeks. Um, I'll be around somewhere. Um, no, that's a very interesting development. And you're right. I mean, the broader questions go to how much individual privacy are we willing to risk sacrificing for the greater good? Um, when you talk about consent, there are certainly privacy rights that cannot be waived in that fashion because privacy is a, a human right. 
and you can't waive a human right through a contractual term quite as easily as some might like to think. But there are certainly ways in which you can waive your right to privacy, and so we'd have to, um, at some point, have a really good think about the extent to which, as a society, we think people should be able to do that, we think it's desirable for people to do that, and yes, take into account the relationship between emergent technology, the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves, and our existing human rights norms. Yes. Fascinating time. Another thing that I think would be worth speaking more about is drones. Ah, drones. Because when everyone's bored, what do you do? You get your drone. drone. And it seems this is not limited to drone enthusiasts in their own back gardens, but also... Um, there are some drone enthusiasts in the police. Yes. This is perhaps one of the more light-hearted stories, um, which is, of course, a relative term these days. Um, but this is uh, the Derbyshire Police Force, yes, that have been using drones with high-definition cameras to not necessarily name and shame, but certainly to shame individuals for walking in the Peak District, seemingly in quite isolated ways, and telling telling them publicly that the what it is they are doing is not essential, um, and that they should go home. Um, and this has uh, caught the attention of the now-retired former Supreme Court Judge Lord Sumption, who um, spoke out about this in the last few days and was um, highly critical of Derbyshire Police's conduct in this matter. I I think it certainly raises a whole bunch of legal questions, right? Um, No doubt about it. So without saying anything at this point on the rights and wrongs of what the, the police force decided to do, whether it's a good idea or not, there are some obvious legal concerns. The first is, as a matter of public law, have the police exceeded their powers? Um, Nothing in the Coronavirus Act, to the best of my knowledge, gives the police the power to name and shame people with drones for walking in the Peak District. Walking in the Peak District is not a criminal offence. Um, in any event, I'm not sure there's a general right to name and shame people suspected of criminal offences prior to um, any uh, other judicial proceedings. Um, in fact, uh, as regular listeners will uh, recall, the law is heading in the direction of a presumption of um, pre-trial anonymity um, for suspects. So... There seems not to be um, a a right to do that. But in any event, have the police exceeded their power because there is no criminal offence committed here? Um, That's one issue. There are the privacy implications of filming people out in public without their consent. And yes, some of the faces were blurred. And yes, sometimes the resolution wasn't good enough to identify people's faces. So I don't think any individual faces were broadcast. Um, Not in the footage that I saw the other day anyway. But people could still be identified by some uh, other means, particularly by people who knew them. 
Um, and as we know from the Von Hanover litigation back in the early 2000s, there is a right to privacy even in a public space. So there are issues here. Is there not also a defamation point? I think that that's an interesting trend that is coming out of a lot of the uh, tabloid press at the moment, is it, this trend towards shaming people. And yes. we saw with them. Um, the Daily Mail's shaming of Stephen Kinnock's, um, who had a Twitter feud with the South Wales police after he went to go visit his father, the um, former Labour minister, in his home on his birthday. And they they took a picture of them adhering to social distancing rules two metres away from the porch. Um, and the South Wales police still chimed in on Twitter saying this was inappropriate. And then the Daily Mail went hell for leather against um, Stephen Kinnock. And I think it's interesting that it does seem to be the new terrible thing to do is to go outside because it's automatically disrespecting the NHS and you're a traitor to your country, etc. Well, I mean, I've never seen the Daily Mail quite so keen on the use of metric measurements before. Um, But um, leaving that one aside... I think the question of whether these sorts of um, articles, whether this activity is defamatory, is really interesting. Um, Because, I mean, if you go back to the drone example, the question I've been asking myself is, would this potentially disclose a defamatory meaning, Um, defamatory of the people in the video? Um, because I mean, the fact that they are out and about is not disputable and is not in itself defamatory. But when you couple it with the statements towards the end of the video about how we need to protect the NHS, then the meaning becomes different. You're naming and shaming people for willfully doing something that endangers members of the NHS. And that is defamatory. At least it would once have been defamatory at common law. I mean, presumably in these circumstances would also pass the Section 1 test in the Defamation Act that we've talked about in previous podcasts. So I think there's a really quite an interesting question as to uh, whether uh, Delbyshire police have defamed uh, these um, uh, individuals. Um, They may well have a defence to that, either as a truth defence, depending on how much of the sting of the libel the court felt was met by... um, uh, the uh, these individuals' actions, or they might have a public interest defence. Um, but these are all matters that would need to be looked at in, in, in much more detail. And the same point applies to the tabloid press, absolutely. Um, this new trend towards naming and shaming, I mean, there, there are a lot of political questions around it to do with the motivation of the uh, the, the newspapers involved. Um, which you know, we're not going to get into, but uh, the purely legal question, if indeed there is such a thing as a purely legal question, uh, is, you know, how, are there any torts committed here? Um, and when the meaning is being put out that X person is paying scant regard for the lives of NHS workers, um, then I, I think you do have to consider that that, that might be defamatory. Mm. One um, one final thing to end on, actually. Yeah. Is um, 
the President of the United States has been giving daily press briefings on the coronavirus, which are riddled with inaccuracies and misinformation. And this has raised an ethical dilemma for many American journalists. And some have made a judgment call to cut out, cut the press conferences off. And Tom, I wonder, just before we finish, what would you do if you were a journalist in the White House briefing room at that moment? Oh, crikey. Well, I imagine I would have been banned from the White House pre- briefing room a lot a lot earlier. Um, it's a really tough question for journalists. And one has to think about it in context as well, because American journalists have a very particular um, commitment, I think, to publishing as much information as, as possible um, because America has this constitutional commitment to freedom of expression under the First Amendment, uh, which you know, in this country we do have a commitment to freedom of speech, but it's not that level of commitment, I would say. Not on a legal level, not on a constitutional level, not on a political level. Um, m- most European countries, and we are not an exception to this, have been historically more willing to tolerate restrictions on free speech than the United States has been. And so it cuts against the grain of US journalists' normal modes of behavior to not report on something that has been said by their president. But they are as you rightly say, um, concerned that if they do report on some of what the 45th president is saying, they might spread, indeed, and and many would say, oh, will definitely be spreading, um, misinformation. And isn't there, there's an equal journalistic responsibility to report the truth. Exactly. And so almost especially in times of, of a health emergency, you need to be reporting so the question is, should they, in effect, no platform the country's elected president during a time of national and indeed global crisis because they do not have confidence that the information being given out is the truth? It is extraordinary what is happening there and the decisions that the journalists are going to uh, have to make and it, it's not something that we can deal with in, in, in detail here but I, I hope very much that um, in, a, in a forthcoming podcast we will be able to explore um, the implications for free speech because it's it's important to look at this sort of in, a, in, a, in, in context and also in a degree of philosophical depth. What does this tell us about the way in which the United States conceptualizes free speech and whether those concepts can withstand the kind of pressure that's being put on them. Traditionally, the United States has talked a lot about the importance of the marketplace of ideas, where one puts information out as if it were going out into a marketplace, and we'll see who laps it up the most, and that that is the arbiter of what should and should not be published. Generally, it's a, a, a justification for very, very limited restrictions on freedom of speech because, you know, in a marketplace, the market determines um, what truth is acceptable. To what extent can that sort of uh, vision 
of the right to free speech withstand the kind of pressure that comes from these circumstances where the risk of misinformation is 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 high in terms of its likely occurrence and in terms of the severity of its of its likely impact i think the marketplace comparison is interesting as well because there's an argument that no platforming trump would actually help his 2020 campaign because people wouldn't be aware of the lies and the ill thought through representation of the current situation in america properly and so by by seeing the way that he's not handling this properly voters can then make a more informed decision in the november uh, election you're absolutely right Um, this is going to have an impact on the democratic exercise as well and there are it's a cop-out to say there are no easy answers but there are no easy answers um what we can hope to do is, is is trying to explore some of this i think in a bit more depth at a later date because we're going to have to come back to it we'll have to come back to that on that note then um let's return to all these issues in fuller podcasts in the coming months we'll do our very best to do that wonderful i mean we've got plenty of time stuck at home (laughs) that's true um but the the first task on uh, that we should all be concerned with right now and this 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 to all our listeners is to uh, keep safe keep your loved ones safe as much as possible Take care of yourselves and uh, we'll be with you every chance that we can.